Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Ron Rash at Hennepin County's Plymouth Library. Ron Rash is one of the most popular authors writing today in the areas of historical and regional fiction. Rash's powerful, yet gently beautiful novels draw heavily from his own experiences in his native Appalachia, according to USA Today. These include Serena, a finalist for the 2009 Penn Faulkner Award, and The Cove, winner of the 2012 Langham Prize for Historical Fiction. The former saw a big screen adaption of the same name in 2014, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. Rash is also an accomplished short story writer with two O. Henry Prizes and the prestigious Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award to his credit. His newest novel, Above the Waterfall, offers a poignant look at small town life in contemporary Appalachia. It debuted in September 2015. Good to be here tonight. Uh, can you hear me okay? Okay, good. Uh, the accent, I can't do anything about, but uh, you know, the, the volume, I can. Uh, I've got this weird sense of disconnect tonight. I uh, left my son Sunday night. It was uh, where I live in the North Carolina mountains. It was about 28 degrees. My son was playing hockey, if you can believe that. He's a goalie on, a, on the team. Uh, and then I come to Minnesota and it's warm and people are jogging in their shorts. Something, <laughs> something, something's going on that, that I don't quite understand. Um, what I thought I'd do tonight, I, I am going to read from a new novel, but I, I wanted to start with a short story. I thought it might be a story that uh, people in Minnesota could relate to. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I hope, I hope you can. Uh, uh, the writers from the Midwest I admire, I think it's the kind of story they, they might approve of. Uh, so I'll start with that, but the theme tonight is going to be wonder. And I'm known, my brother sends me sometimes reviews of my work and wonder, he loves to send little snippets. And one reviewer said I was implacably grim as a writer. <laughs> And, which I don't necessarily agree with, but, but then when I started thinking about some of my characters, uh, uh, you know, I realized that when I say I'm go this, this new novel is my most optimistic, that's not raising the bar really that high. <laughs> but but uh, the story I'm going to read actually comes from my last collection of short stories, Something Rich and Strange, but it, it struck me that this was a story, I, one of the last stories I wrote uh, in that volume, and a story that kind of led into this novel because... Uh, it's about many things, but it's also about uh, wonder. There's a line in there that I feel is very important. Uh, but it's also about how at least a generation of men uh, who can never have said the word love to one another show their love. And in the story, uh, one of the men has just recently lost his wife, a veterinarian called 3 a.m. and the stars were out. Carson had gone to bed early, so when the cell phone rang, he thought it might be his son or daughter calling to check on him. But as he turned to the night table, the clock's green glow read 2.18. Too late for a chat 
or any kind of good news. He lifted the phone and heard Darnell Coe's voice. I got trouble with a calf that ain't of a mind to get born, Darnell told him. Carson sat up on the mattress, settled his bare feet on the floor. Moments passed before he realized he was waiting for another body to do the same thing, leave the bed and fix him a thermos of coffee. Almost four months and it still happened, not just when he awoke, but other times too. He'd read something and lower the newspaper, about to speak to an empty chair, or at the grocery store, reach into a shirt pocket for a needed, neatly printed list that wasn't there. He dressed and went out to the truck. All that would be needed lay in the pickup's lockbox, or just as likely, on Darnell's gun rack. The road to Flag Pond was 20 miles of switchbacks and curves that ended just short of the Tennessee line. A voice on the radio said no rain until midday, so at least he'd not be contending with a slick road. Carson had closed his office two years ago, referred his clients to Bobby Starnes, a new doc just out of med vet school. Bobby had grown up in Madison County and that helped a lot. But the older farmers, some Carson had known since childhood, kept calling him. Because they know you won't expect them to pay up front or at all, Doris had claimed, which was true in some cases. But for others, like Darnell Coe, it wasn't. We've been hitched to the same wagon this long, we'll pull it the rest of the way together, Darnell had said, reminding Carson that in the 1950s and half a world away, they'd made a vow to do so. As the town's last streetlight slid off the rearview mirror, Carson turned the radio off. It was something he often did on late night calls, making driving the good part, because what usually awaited him in a barn or pasture would not be good. A cow dying of milk fever or a horse with a gangrious leg. Things easily cured if a man hadn't wagered a vet fee against a roll of barbed wire or salt lick. There had been times when Carson told men to their faces they were stupid to wait so long. But even a smart farmer did stupid things when he'd been poor too long. He'd figure after a drought had withered his corn stalks, or maybe a hailstorm had beaten the life out of his tobacco allotment, that he was owed a bit of good luck. So he'd skip on a calcium shot or pour turpentine on an infected limb, waiting it out till he'd waited too late then calling Carson when a rifle was the only remedy. So driving had to be the good part, and it was. Carson had always been comfortable with solitude. As a boy, he loved to roam the woods, loved how quiet the woods could be. If deep enough in them, he wouldn't even hear the wind. But the best was afternoons in the barn. He'd climb up in the loft and lean back against a hay bale, then watch the sunlight begin to lean through the loft window, brightening the spilled straw. When the light was at its apex, the loft shimmered as though coated with a golden foil. Dust motes speckled the air like midges. The only sound would be underneath, a cow restless in a stall, a horse eating from a feed bag. Carson had always felt an aloneness in those moments, but never in a sad way. Through the years, the same feeling had come back to him on late nights as he drove out of town. Doris would be back in bed and the children asleep as he left the house. Night would gather around him, the only light is truck's twin beams probing the road ahead. He would pass darkened farmhouses and barns as he made his way toward the glow of lamp or porch light. On the way back was the better time, though. He'd savor the solitude, knowing that later when he opened his children's doors, he would watch them a few moments as they slept, then lie down himself as doors turned or shifted so that some part of their bodies touched. The road forked and Carson went right. The cell phone lay on the passenger seat. Sometimes a farmer called and told Carson he might as well turn around. But this far from town, the phone didn't work. The road snaked upward, nothing on the sides now but drop-offs and trees, an occasional white cross and a vase of wilted flowers. Teenage boys, for the most part, Carson knew. 
too young to think it could happen to them. It was that way in war as well, until you watched enough boys your own age being zipped up in body bags. Carson had been drafted by the Army three months after Darnell joined the Marines. They had not seen each other until the 7th Infantry supported the 1st Marine at Chosan Reservoir, crossing paths in a Red Cross soup line. It was late afternoon and the temperature already below zero. The Chinese, some men claimed to me, and of them were pouring in over the Korean border, and no amount of casualties looked to stop them. Let's make a vow to God and them Chinese, too. If they let us get back to North Carolina alive, we'll stay put and grow old together, Darnell had said. He'd held out his hand, and Carson had taken it. The road curved a final time, and the battered mailbox labeled Co. appeared. Carson turned off the black top and bumped up the drive, wheels crunching over the chert rock. The porch light was on. From the barn mouth, a lantern's lesser glow. Carson parked next to the unlatched pasture gate, got the medicine bag and canvas toolkit from the truck body. He shouldered the gate open and pushed it back. This far from town, the stars were brighter, the sky wider, deeper. As on other such nights, Carson paused to take it in. A small consolation. The lantern hung just inside the barn mouth, offering a thin apron of light to help Carson make his way. He took slow, careful steps so as not to trip on old milking traces. Inside, it took a few moments to adjust to the barn's starless dark. Near the back stall, the cow lay on the straw floor. Darnell kneeled beside her, one hand stroking her flank. A stainless steel bucket was close by, already filled with water. Beside it, rags and a frayed bed sheet. Darnell's shotgun, not his rifle, leaned against the stall door. How long? Carson asked. Three hours. Carson set the bags down and checked the cow's gums, then placed the stethoscope silver bell against the flank before pulling on a shoulder glove. I think it's breached, Darnell said. Carson lubed the glove and slid his hand and forearm inside, felt a bent leg, then a shoulder, another leg, and finally the head. He slipped a finger inside the mouth and felt a suckle. Life stubbornly held on. Maybe he wouldn't have to pull the calf out one piece at a time. At least a chance. Not a full breach then, Darnell said when Carson pulled off the glove. Afraid it isn't. Carson spread the tarp on the barn floor, set out what he'd need while Darnell retrieved a lantern and set it beside Carson. Inside the lantern's low light, the world shrank to a circle of star. Within it, two old men, a cow, and though curtained, a calf. Carson did a quick swab and pushed in the needle, waited for the lidocaine to ease the contractions. Darnell still stroked the cow's flank. As a young vet, Carson had quickly learned there were some men and women, good people otherwise, who'd let a lame calf linger days, not bothering to end its misery. They do the same thing with a sheep with black leg. Never Darnell, though. Because he'd witnessed enough suffering in Korea not to wish it on man or animal was what some folks would think. But Carson knew it to be as much Darnell's innate decency. Why the shotgun, Carson asked. Coyotes. I've not heard any of late, but this is the sort of thing to draw them out. Darnell nodded at the calf jack. Figure you'll have to use it. I'm going to try not to. The cow's abdomen relaxed and the round eyes calmed. Somewhere in the loft, a swallow stirred. Then the barn was silent and the lantern's light seemed to soften. The calf waited in its deeper darkness for Carson to birth it whole and alive, or dead and in pieces. Carson's hands suddenly felt heavy, shackled. He looked down at them, stark blue veins, 
knuckles puffy with arthritis. He remembered another misaligned calf, not nearly as bad as this one. He was just months into his practice and had seen the calf's uterine wall, had torn the calf's uterine wall, killing both cow and calf. Doris had been pregnant with her first child, and when she'd asked Carson if the calf and cow were okay, Carson had lied. Darnell touched his shoulder. You all right? Yeah. Carson lubed his hand, no glove now, and slid it inside, pushed the calf as far back as he could, making space. Sweat trickled down his forehead, his eyes closed now to better imagine the calf's body. He found the snout, tugged it forward a bit, then back, then to one side, and then to another. Carson's heart banged his panting chest like a quickening hammer. The muscles in his neck and shoulder burned. He stopped for a minute, his arm still inside as he caught his breath. What do you think? Darnell asked. Maybe, Carson answered. Half an hour passed before he got ahead of line. Darnell gave him a wet hand cloth and Carson wiped the sweat off his face and neck. He rested a while longer before nodding at the tarp. Okay, let's get that leg. Darnell hooked the OB chain to the handle and gave the other end to Carson who looped the chain around the front leg. Darnell gripped the handle and dug his boots, boot heels into the barn floor. Okay, Carson said, his hand on the calf's leg. The chain slowly tightened. Carson bent the foreleg to ensure the hoof didn't rake the uterine wall. Darnell did the hard work now, grunting as his muscles strained. They spoke little, Carson nodding left or right when needed. Minutes passed as the leg gave and caught. Like cracking a safe, that's how Carson thought of it feeling the combination that made the last tumbler fall into place. It felt like the womb swung open and the calf would withdraw. There were times he could almost hear the click. Home free, Darnell gasped when the leg finally aligned. Come morning, liniment would grease their lower backs and shoulders. They would move gingerly. New twinges and aches added to others gained over eight decades. Lord help us if our kids knew what we were up to tonight, Darnell said as he rubbed his shoulder. They'd likely fix you and me up, me up with those electronic devices, ankle bracelets, they call them. Keep us under house arrest. Which would show they got more sense than we have, Carson replied. The second leg took less than a minute, and the calf slipped into a wider world. Carson cleared mucus from the snout, placed a finger inside the mouth, felt a tug. Much as we've done this, you'd think it might get a tad bit easier, Darnell said. But that's not the way of it, is it? No, Carson said. Most things just get harder. The last thing was calcium and antibiotic shots, but Carson doubted his hand capable of holding the needle steady. It could wait a few minutes. The men sat on the barn floor, weary arms crossed on raised knees as they waited for the calf to gain its legs. Carson leaned his head on his forearms and closed his eyes. He listened as the calf's hooves scattered straw, the body lifting and falling back until it figured out the physics. Once it did, Carson raised his head and watched the calf's knees wobble but hold. The cow was soon up too. The calf nuzzled and found a teat, began to suckle. There's a wonder to it yet, Darnell said. Carson didn't disagree. They watched a few more moments, not speaking. Lantern's wick burned low now. Carson resettled his hands, let his fingertips shift straw and touch the firmer earth as he leaned back. Only when the flame was a sinking flicker inside a glass did Darnell raise himself to one knee. Now let's see if we can get up too, he said. 
Darnell grunted and stood, knees popping as he did so. He reached a hand under Carson's upper arm and helped him up. Carson's hinges grinding as well. Darnell lifted the lantern, turned the brass screw until the light filled the globe again. He set the lantern down and walked over to the barn mouth, only a silhouette visible until a match rasped and illuminated his face a moment. So you're smoking again, Carson said. Nobody around to argue against it, Darnell answered. Funny how you even missed the nagging. That's true, Carson said. Stepped over to the barn mouth and leaned against the opposite beam. The stars sprawled yet overhead, though now Venus had tucked itself in among them. Though no more than a dozen feet apart, the men were mere shadows to each other. Carson watched the orange cigarette tip rise and hold a moment, then descend. A shifting came from the barn's depths, then a lapping sound as the cow's tongue washed the calf. Doris was a fine woman, Darnell said. Yes, Carson said she was. Four months now, ain't it? Almost. It does ease up some, eventually, Darnell said. He stubbed out his cigarette. Something between a sigh and a snicker crossed the dark between them. What's tickling your funny bone, Carson asked. Just curious if the widows are showing up with their casseroles yet. <laughs> no, Carson said. I mean, none since the funeral. Well, it won't be long, son, and once it commences, you'll think you're in the Pillsbury Bake Off. <laughs> I'm not looking for another wife, Carson said. I wasn't either, but they come after me anyway. We're a rare commodity partner. One time I went down to that senior center, it was me and Ansel Turner and 30 women. I got out of there and ain't been back, but poor old Ansel was in his wheelchair, so he couldn't get away. <laughs> he was remarried in six months. They finally gave up on me, but you're fresh game. Darnell paused. I ain't making light of your loss. I know that, Darnell said. Carson said, I've had plenty enough grieving words and hangdog faces. The sad part, I don't need any help with. He was rested enough now to give the shots, but waited. Except for speaking to his son and daughter on the phone, Carson hadn't much wanted to talk to people of late. But tonight, here in the dark with Darnell, there was a pleasure in it. The stars don't shout out in town like they do here, Carson said. I'm not down there often of a night to know, Darnell answered. But it's nice to look up and see something that never changes. When I was in Korea, I'd find the Big Dipper and the Huntress and the Archer. They hung in the sky different, but I could make them out. Same as if I was in North Carolina. There was a comfort in doing that, especially when the fighting got thick. I did that a couple of times too, Carson said. Darnell lit another cigarette and stepped outside the barn, listening till he was satisfied. They ain't yapping about it, Darnell said, but they could still be out there. Carson half stifled a yawn. I can put us on a pot of coffee. No, Carson answered, I'll be on my way as soon as I give the shots. Back in Korea, we have not have figured it to turn out this way, would we? Darnell said. I mean, we've gotten a lot more than we ever thought. Yes, Carson replied, we have. Carson went back inside, gave the shots, packed up. Darnell lifted a lantern in one hand and the medicine bag in the other, led them back down to the pickup. Darnell opened his billfold and offered five $10 bills. That, as always, Carson refused. They shook hands and he got in the truck. As Carson bumped down the drive, he looked back and saw the lantern's glow moving toward the barn. Darnell would hang the lantern back on its nail, maybe smoke another cigarette as he stood in the barn mouth, attentive as any good sentry.
one of my older relatives was at uh, Chosan Reservoir, if you know about that battle. And uh, I remember uh, he was telling me about it one time, and he, and he said, and then the fighting got thick. And uh, I've always remembered that, that way of seeing that. Well, I wanted to read just a couple of short excerpts from uh, Above the Waterfall. And, and uh, as, as I've already implied, I feel like this is a book that uh, I needed to write, uh, an important book for me to write, uh, important in a number of ways. And, and, and one way uh, for me as a writer is, I think, to be true to the world. Uh, certainly there's darkness, and I think a writer has to acknowledge that. But there's also light. There's beauty and wonder. Uh, there's the possibility of redemption. And I wanted to write a book about those, those things as well. And I, I hope I did it. Uh, I did my best to try to do that in this book. Uh, but there's some tough things in it. Um, my, I have two voices in the book. I'm just going to read, well, I'm going to read two, but, but mainly from a, a young woman named, or middle-aged woman named Becky, uh, who when she was 12 years old has had a, a horrific incident in her life. Uh, a shooter comes into her elementary school. Uh, she and the, the other students, led by their teacher, go hide in the basement. Uh, the, the shooter comes halfway down the stairs. Becky, terrified, speaks, and he comes on down, and she goes into this intense sadness, refuses to speak for months, uh, even to the point where finally her parents almost give up on her and send her to her grandparents to see if they can help her. And they do, uh, mainly by just leaving her alone and letting her go out in the world uh, into this beautiful natural world in the uh, actually Virginia mountains, not North Carolina. And Becky starts to heal. And, but she finds that in her life, to survive, she has to stay believing in wonder, and as she says early in the book, word and world and wonder being one thing. And she does this by just intensely connecting to the natural world. And, and when I was writing her voice, I, I write poetry as well, and I wanted to bring a lot of what I've learned uh, from poetry. I wanted her voice to be as intense as possible. And I also uh, wanted her, one aspect I love about Emily Dickinson, I love her language, but to me an equally impressive aspect of her is that Dickinson thinks thoughts that no other human being could. I mean, she, there's something in her sensibility that she sees things in a way just differently. Uh, uh, to me, that's a huge part of her genius. Uh, you know, no one has ever thought this way. And I wanted, I, I aimed, I wanted to try to give Becky some of that. I wanted her to see the, way, the world in a way that I, I didn't, uh, a very intense way. And uh, one thing that she's really connected with is the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. And if you know Hopkins' poetry, it's, it's the most intense poetry I know of as far as sound. Um, uh, Y'all know his work? Any, okay, well, well, you can just hear this. And just, this is just the opening of one of his poems uh, about seeing this uh, uh, falcon hunting. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's darling, dappled dawn-drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air. I mean, you can hear that intense sound. Hopkins called it chiming. Uh, and, uh, and I wanted Becky's language to have that same kind of intensity. And the scene I'm going to read right now is, is the opening scene in the, in the book. And uh, Becky has gone out to the park. It's about this time of year, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, I found out today you do have black-eyed Susans up here, so you know exactly what those, they look like. Uh, so that helps. Uh, but... Uh, it, it's, it's almost dark, a few bats are even out, and Becky, what she loves to do is there's a meadow in her park, and it's surrounded by trees, you know, obviously, but uh, she loves to go there right at dusk and watch until the only thing left is the glow of the black-eyed Susans, that intense yellow, and so that's, that's what she's doing in this scene, and just, I hope, you know, the way she sees them and, and her uh, connectedness. Though sunlight tinges the mountains, black leather-winged bodies swing low. First fireflies blink languidly. 
Beyond this meadow, cicadas rev and slow like sewing machines, all else ready for night except night itself. I watch last light lift off level land, ground shadows seep and thicken, circling trees form banks, the meadow itself becomes a pond filling, on its surface dozens of black-eyed Susans. I sit on ground, cooling, soon dew damp, near me a moldboard plow long left, honeysuckle vines twine green cords, White flowers attached like Christmas lights. I touch a handle slick from wrist shifts and sweaty grips. Memory of my grandfather's hands. Calluses round and smooth as worn corns. One morning I'd watched him cross the field, the still oar rippling soil. In its wake, a caught wave of silly and shine. But this plow has wearied into sleep. How long lying here? Perhaps a decade since saplings and sawbriar rise amid broomsedge. Above all else, those bold yellow blossoms in full petaled bloom. What has brought me here? A deer emerges from the woods, nose up, stilt step, then steadying paws, another hoof lifted. Dark rises around me. The black-eyed Susans float like water lilies. All else disappears, but they hold their yellow glow. Moon mirrors, sun ghosts, dream abeyant. When the night pond floods its bank, I walk the trail to the state park truck. When I look back at the meadow, only darkness. Well, uh, I have four books of poetry, and actually my fifth book is coming out this spring, uh, New and Selected Poems. And uh, like all my other poet friends, I don't think you have to be a poet uh, necessarily to, to do this, but uh, uh, there are certain words I just love. I just love, there are words I love so much that sometimes, uh, much to, uh, to, the, to the dismay of some of my more literal readers, I'll actually just put a name of a stream or something into a county in North Carolina just because I like the name of it. Uh, I love uh, Lick Log Creek was one of my, or is one of my favorites. And it's in South Carolina, but I moved it up into the North Carolina mountains. <laughs> and I actually got an angry email that there was no Lick Log Creek. And, and, uh, and I, I, I reminded uh, the reader, this is fiction uh, after all. <laughs> but one of my favorite words is murmuration. Y'all know that word? Okay, good, yeah, yeah. I would think people in, some people in Minnesota would know that word. Uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it's something everyone in this room has seen. It's starlings. Uh, when starlings move as one in the, in the air, you've seen this. Yeah, everyone's seen this. And um, this is a scene where Becky sees it and, and with her own kind of view of it. A hayfield appears. It's blonde stubble blackened by a flock of starlings. As I pass, the field seems to lift, peek to see what's under itself, then resettle. A pickup passes from the other direction. The flock lifts again and this time keeps rising, a narrowing swirl as if sucked through a pipe, and then an unfurl of rhythm sudden sprung, becoming one entity as it wrinkles, smooths out, drifts down like a snapped bedsheet then swerves and shifts, gathers and twists. Murmuration, ornithology's word poem for what I see. 200 starlings at most, but in Europe sometimes 10,000, enough to punctuate a sky. And one other brief scene from Becky. And this is a, this is a scene where you actually, I mean, it's only about a page, but uh, you'll get a sense of her uh, fear and how she has, you know, she, she has a flash in a sense of flashback because she loves to work with children and take them out into the natural world. That's, that's uh, you know, and, and you can understand why she would do that for a number of reasons. Uh, but uh, when, when she, 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 she's doing that in this scene and then as the bus leaves, it brings back a memory of that day she ran toward the school buses. Uh, when the, sh the shooting happened.
but uh, you, you see that how, she, how it still traumatizes her, but you'll also see how she tries to pull out of it. The teacher nods at her watch, says it's time to leave. As the orange bus drives away, a child peers through the back window. Behind the glass, she mouths words as she waves at me. Memory scalds. Not the orange bride of buses we ran toward that morning, but minutes before in the classroom as Miss Abernathy lined us up. You must be as quiet as you can, children, she had told us. Promise me you won't say a single word. More memories come of the days and months after that morning. The room with big chairs and magazine-filled tables. A smaller room full of soft questions. A pair of black-framed glasses behind which huge eyes urged spoken answers, not head shakes. One night, my father thinking me asleep. The other children are getting over it fine. Why can't she? We tried everything. It's cost us a fortune. What your parents offered, well, let them have her. At least we'll have a break from this. I close my eyes. Wash away, I whisper. Wash away. Wash away. I walk down the loop trail, past foxglove, past bloom. Midsummer, their flowers dangled like soft yellow bells. I'd wish them a breeze so they might silently ring. The same yellow as Van Gogh's sunflowers. Van Gogh's thick paint like Hopkins' thick sounds. Such grace given, giving from supposed failed priest. I think of reading Hopkins in those days after Richard's death. A failed priest saved my soul. What would Hopkins see here, I ask. I pick up a Frasier fir cone, a hollowed lightness like a thimble, springs green weight gone. The edges are strong killed as viper scales, wing seeds wedged in the slits. High in a white oak, a flicker searches for grubs. The birds too blended to see it first, but then the red nape reveals and tree bark softens into feathers. The flicker's tap bursts and pauses, a thoughtful message typed. When the trail skirts the creek, a stand of silver birch, then a gap where sun and water pool. On a granite outcrop, a five-line skink. His throat fills and sags, but no other movement. A chameleon of stillness. Indigo body coppered with stripes at chevron on the head. The back feet frog-cocked, the tail a bright blue fuse. I too feel the heat soak of sun and stone, the human in me unshackling. And uh, I'm going to finish. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, which uh, I have mixed feelings about. Um, but I did get to hear a lot of sermons. Uh, I mean, we go to church, uh, you know, about four times a week. Uh, and that's not even during revival season, uh, which, which kind of makes you wonder, they, you know, why do these people need to go to church this much, you might ask. Uh, but um, I, I, two of my favorite books, uh, my favorite American novels, Moby Dick. I mean, that's, that's to me, just an astonishing book. I, I just, I, 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 you know, it's one of those books that I, I just don't know how anybody writes that well. But... Uh, I, uh, I love that book, and, I, and another book I dearly love is by my fellow Southerner, Faulkner, The Sound and the Fury, and, and both those books have great sermons in them. You know, if you remember in Moby Dick, uh, is it Father Maple, I think it's Father Maple, or Marple Maple, who gives the sermon. It's almost like they have a ship's bow, because this is for the sailors, you know, the, uh, the guys, the whale hunters. So. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, Sound of the Fury, the last section, Dilsey goes to church uh, on Easter morning, and, and there's that great sermon that she hears. So I've always kind of wanted to do one of those sermons, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I write about uh, uh, Western North Carolina. That's my kind of my spot of land, which uh, is, is in no way limiting. Uh, you know, James Joyce only wrote about Dublin, right? And I'll finish the reading with this. Yeah, this is Preacher Waldrop. 
There Peter was with Christ Almighty standing right for him, the fellow even now called the rock of the church. Peter floundering away with no more grace than a three-legged mule. Ponder it, brothers and sisters, the same Peter that seen the lame trot off without a stumble, blind folks with their eyes awashed in every color of the rainbow. Peter had been there to witness it all. His own eyes seen the dead wiggle out of their grave quilts like a moth shucking its cocoon. Have you seen such a sight in your woods or fields, brothers and sisters? I have. It was of an afternoon. I thought that cocoon was nothing more than a fox turd. There ain't no way to say it but that. All brown, dried up looking. Then that cocoon give a shiver and this little head poked through and then its body spread out as pretty a set of wings as I've seen on bird or butterfly. Big green wings, the very color of new life itself. Now you're thinking, preacher, you was talking about old Peter and now you're talking about moths. Brothers and sisters, it's all one. There Peter was looking straight into the very eyes of God walking to see a Galilee and then of a sudden up to his neck in water. Some would argue he lacked the true believing, but I say he had enough faith to go it a ways. And when he couldn't go farther, Christ fetched him up. What am I saying? I'm saying that the walk to God ain't easy for the best of us. Now some would say, Preacher, if Peter had misdoubts there in the very glory of the Lord, what of us left here that ain't seen the dead raised nor the leper folk healed? All we've seen is hard trials and sorrows. I'd not deny it. Burdens are plenty in this world, and they pull us down into lamentation. But the good Lord knows we need to see at least the hem of the robe of glory. And we do. Ponder a pretty sunset or the dogwoods all a-blossom. Every time you see such, it's the hem of the robe of glory. Brothers and sisters, how do you expect to see what you don't seek? Some claim heaven has streets of gold and all such things, but I hold a different notion. When we're there, we'll say the angels, why a lot of heaven's glory was in the place we come from. You know what them angels will say? They'll say, yes, pilgrim. And how often did you notice? What did you see? And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Ron Rash and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering which Midwestern writers Ron Rash admires. Well, one of my favorites is Bob Dylan. I mean, <laughs> from Hibbing, Minnesota, where uh, also one of my favorite basketball players, Kevin McHale, came from. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm up on, yeah. Um, you know, I've read Bly. I'm not as big a fan of Bly. I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously, I think he's probably your best-known poet, but, uh, but uh, I like some of the deep image poems uh, as well. But uh, certainly Jim Harrison is an important writer, and... Uh, uh, some of the other writers uh, I think of, you know, like Ted Couser, do y'all know who he is, a uh, Nebraska poet, I don't know, what, would you consider him a Midwestern, yeah, yeah, Midwest, and, and I, you know, I think, I was, I was talking a little bit about this on the radio today, but it, it's kind of interesting, uh, I think sometimes uh, it, it, New York makes it appear that, uh, you know, the only writing that's of any import is coming out of New York City, you know, that you have to be there, and, and of course that's delusional. Uh, and, and also an incredibly provincial way to look at things. But, but you know, so much of the great American literature has come out of uh, rural areas. Uh, certainly Hemingway growing up where he did. I mean, you know, writing about that rural Michigan, uh, Winesburg, Ohio. Uh, one of my favorite contemporary writers, Annie Prue, uh, you know, who writes, can write about anywhere pretty much. Um, but I think uh, one thing that's been interesting to me, I was in France three weeks ago uh, where my books have done well, and Jim Harrison is, is, is the best-known American writer, living American writer in France. Did y'all know that? No, he, his, his reputation is huge there. Uh, but, uh, but, but it's interesting I, I, because when, when I'm in the United States, uh, I'm, I'm very often viewed as a regional writer, as if... You know, if somebody from New York City is not regional, I mean, that is a place. 
Uh, but when, but, but in, uh, in France, uh, other countries in Europe, and, and, and also uh, places, even uh, China, uh, I'm viewed as an American writer. And, and I think there's a sense that, you know, really the real America is not necessarily uh, New York City, or that's a very small part of, of all of America. So anyway, uh, that, that's a long-winded answer, to, and it kind of went off course, yeah. Our next audience member asks if any other of Rash's books are in the process of being adapted to film, like his 2008 novel, Serena. No, no, that's, that's a, that, that, I don't know how far I want to go into that, but uh, the, the movie was, was not a masterpiece. I'll just leave it there. But I, I was invited to the premiere, and uh, uh, I, sent, I let my son and daughter go. Uh, you know, they, they had more fun. Uh, they, my son was very excited about meeting Jennifer Lawrence, and my daughter about Bradley Cooper. And, uh, and I really didn't care. Uh, but, but actually, a very good movie. Uh, Serena, yeah, it had its moments. You know, there were, there were a couple of good moments, yeah. But uh, uh, an even better movie is, uh, was made of my third novel, uh, World Ma The World Made Straight. And that one has not gotten as much attention. It's an independent, but it's really good. And it's got uh, one of my favorite musicians, uh, Steve Earle, plays one of the big roles. And, uh, and actually, uh, there's, uh, I always kind of hesitate to say this, but uh, there's a pretty good chance my first novel may, 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 may be made into a movie soon. And, but, you know, I, I stay out of it. I've never worked on a script. I mean, I'll answer a few questions, but that's, that's about as far as I go. Yeah, you didn't do the screenplay. No, 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 no. I, I, I just don't feel like it's hard enough for me to write fiction, and, and that's, that's a really different kind of thing. The one thing I did contribute to uh, Serena, which is kind of funny, is that Toby Jones plays the sheriff, and you may not recognize his name, but you've seen him in, in movies. He's in The Hunger Games. He was uh, Capote and Infamous. Uh, he's in, he's in uh, what else, Hunger Games, uh, Harry Potter. I mean, he's, 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 he's a, a role actor. Anyway, he's British. And I talked to a screenwriter. screenwriter had a few questions about North Carolina and about, you know, certain things, geography. And uh, one day he said, uh, well, Toby Jones like to talk to you. And, uh, and so I said, sure. Uh, so, so Jones called me from London. And after about five minutes, he hadn't, he hadn't asked me a real question. And, and he was listening to my voice. <laughs> and, and I know that this, the, the, the uh, screenwriter had said, yeah, they really do talk like this. Just call this number. And, and <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Toby gave it his best shot in the movie, you know. He, uh, but, it, but it was actually an interesting conversation because, you know, I mean, he's very talented, but but we were, you know, I mean, he really got into the minutia once he revealed what he's really after. And, uh, and you know, we were talking about how, you know, the sheriff had, a, you know, a degree more education, how that would affect, you know, that, you know, the accent and word choice. And uh, it, it kind of gave me insight into what, how a really good actor or actress works. Yeah. This question is about the challenges Rash faced to become a writer and how he was able to overcome those hurdles. Uh, I didn't publish my first book till I was 40. I, I made a real serious commitment when I was about 27, maybe 28. Uh, and, and I mean by serious commitment, pretty much writing every day, which I've done. I pretty much do. I, I, I'd say probably in the last 20 years, I've averaged four to five hours a day. Uh, but I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, but I think uh, part of it is you just have to get used to discouragement. I mean, I mean, I, I and I did. I don't know why I kept going. I, I had little. Uh, uh, I, I knew for for a while I kept writing, and I knew the work wasn't good because I'd read enough to know it wasn't. Uh, but there was something in me. Well, I'll tell you what it was. I'll tell you what it came down to. I mean, I, I can remember this. It was a very conscious decision because I tend. I'm not a well-rounded person. I've only wanted to do a couple of things well in my life. Uh, and, and when I was about 27, 28, uh, I said, because I've been trying, you know, I've been dabbling. Uh, I said, do I want to live my life wondering if I could have done this? Or do I want to risk my life and end up 62, which I am now, and saying, man, I sure did blow that. Uh, you know, never having published, you know, and finding out I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I mean, and... You know, I mean, I, I think I made the right decision, but it was scary. And, and I mean, you do have to sacrifice a lot. 
um, I mean, you have to, uh, yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's not the easiest thing to do, but, you know, it's, when it, when it works, I mean, when you can hold a book like this, uh, when uh, I, I can read a story and feel like it connects, you know, that's, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, whether it's read aloud or, or what, you know, somebody reads it. Uh, yeah, it's what I'm. It's, it's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a track star earlier on. I was actually. I, I'm actually. I mentioned. Uh, I remember Gary Bjorklund and I are about the same age. The great, if you know who he was, Minnesota runner. Uh, so <laughs> I was mentioning him. And, and 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 having run track has been very helpful because when I go to, I went to New Zealand on book tour and I I, I mentioned some uh, names and you know they were just astonished. I knew these uh, you know uh, New Zealand runners from like 1978 or 80, and I got a lot of like, got a lot of mileage out of that. <laughs> yeah. Our next question is whether Rash was an active writer as a child. No, I didn't, and that's that's interesting because I've got friends who were writing novels when they're eight years old. I mean, they would you know they would actually put together something they'd call a novel. I didn't start writing while I was in college, but but I had all the symptoms. Uh, <laughs> I was, I mean, I, you can either view it as as I was a very uh, uh, solitary child or a very uh, antisocial child. I'm not, but I spent most of my time outdoors by myself. Uh, and I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's farm in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, and I did this weird thing. Looking back on it, I, I didn't realize it was how strange it was. But from about the time I was like 10 or 11, I would just go up there and live with her in the summers. Uh, and I mean, she had no vehicle. Uh, she had no uh, TV that worked. Uh, and uh, she, her, her land, land still in my family, uh, bordered the Blue Ridge Parkway. And she would, you know, fix me lunch. Uh, you know, I'd eat a big breakfast, fix me a lunch, and I'd take off, and I, I'd be gone sometimes seven or eight hours. I mean, you know, I, I mean, like 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, and it was, it was such a wonderful, well, it was wonderful training to be a writer, because that's what you do. You spend most of your days by yourself, uh, but uh, what a wonderful experience. But, but what I, I hadn't thought about until just a couple of years ago, I suddenly realized, you know, my brother and sister never went once. All those years, they never one time went when I did. You know, when I mean, my parents would go visit, but then they'd leave me. You know, and and uh, maybe maybe it was their idea. I mean, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, they would just you know and, and come back maybe in a month or you know, whatever. But uh, but man, well, it was just wonderful. And, and it was and and the other good good thing about it was that well I, did, I had a lot of relatives because uh, that area you know, hadn't had a lot of change, and a lot of my relatives lived nearby, so I could, you know, walk a mile or two, and then if I got hungry, I could just go to see, you know, Cousin Roy, and uh, he would give me something to eat. It was a, uh, but, but, but my point being, yeah, that, you know, I was, I think I was training to be a writer, and I was a, a voracious, my temperament was that of a writer, and I was a voracious reader. That's another thing, great thing about my grandmother's farm was she loved books, and uh, she was a farm wife, but, uh, she loved to read, and she had a shelf of books, and you know I, I would read those at night, and uh, it was a great, great, weird childhood. This audience member asks, "What books Rash read growing up?" Oh well, well I love Mark Twain. I love Jack London. Yeah, Jack London was one I loved. I loved the Hardy Boys. You know, I wasn't reading Dante at eight. You know, I, <laughs> uh, I wish I could say that, but I wasn't. But 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 yeah, but Twain, uh, Poe, which would not surprise some people. Uh, um, and uh, but I tell you, the book that changed my life was uh, I read when I was fifteen. It was a uh, Crime and Punishment. Uh, and. Uh, uh, at 15, obviously, I didn't get a lot of what was going on in that book. Uh, Dostoevsky remains probably as important a writer to me as anyone, but, but what it did, and I talked a little bit about this this morning, but I don't think I articulated it as well as I should have. For the first time in my life, it wasn't that I'd entered a book. It was that a book had entered me. And I can remember, I was actually making a D in biology, and I was on the last, you know, the back of the, room and uh, and I just I mean it was almost like going into an altered state of consciousness uh, it, it was the scene early in the book where the pawnbrokers killed 
and I don't know what happened to me, but it was it was visceral. And I, it was almost like, you know, in a Hitchcock movie, when you see those, like the, the chair moves toward the camera, you know, that kind of weird thing. That, that really happened to me. I, and, and, uh, to, to, uh, and what amazed me about it, and, and continues to amaze me about it, is that Dostoevsky did that essentially, if, if you really break it down, he did that with splotches of ink. <laughs> splotches of ink could do that, you know, could put me in that state. And, and to me, that's the wonder of literature, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, books that, that a writer, you know, using less than anything. I mean, think about that compared to a, even a painter or a filmmaker, I mean, or a musician, uh, just splotches of ink. And, uh, but that also, I think, is, is, is what makes writing and, and reading for me an act of communion. Because what, what with the serious reader and the serious writer, what happens there is it's an act of communion, uh, of mutual imagination, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, I, I don't think books will ever be obsolete. I mean, we are becoming a more visual culture. I understand that. Uh, but I would argue literary fiction or, li you know, any literary, anything literary is more important now than it's ever been because we live in a, in a world where uh, so much of it is geared toward the superficial, uh, the soundbite, uh, the uh, the lack of uh, the ability to really uh, engage in a deep, uh, complex way. I mean, I, I, I know th th there are obvious exceptions to this, but I think I think literature is important that way. I think it's important for democracy because it's it uh, if you want people who think, who, who understand complexity, who don't just go into sound bites. And uh, I'm going to really start preaching now. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I, I truly believe these things. And I, and I, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, literature can do that. And it, and it also does the other things, two other things that, that seem to terrify so much of our society. Uh, uh, silence and solitude, you know, that, which are, I, I don't understand how people can live without those things. Uh, I can't, I can't. But, you know, I'm not a Kardashian. The last question of the night comes from a reader wondering what the author's writing process is like. Where does he start? Uh, no, I, I, I just start with the image. Uh, every novel I've written starts with an image, and then I, I just uh, I don't know where it's going. Uh, it's terrifying because after a year, I usually the novel falls apart. I don't know where it's going to go, but I just trust the image, and uh, and and the characters kind of develop. But uh, but the big mis the big problem I had with this one, I, I didn't realize I, Becky's voice. I didn't have that in in there till later, and that was that was really important. The voice I read, if, you know, without that, I don't think this book works. Uh, Under the waterfall began with an image of a fish kill. And I knew somebody was watching it, but I also knew that person was deeply, I mean, it was, it was just a really strong reaction to it. Uh, Becky, I mean, it, Becky was already in the book, but uh, Serena started just with an image of a woman on horseback. That's all I had, and I just ran with it. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of uh, an act of discovery. Well, thank y'all. That wraps up our Plymouth Library event with Ron Rash in Hennepin County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Chuck Logan at 7 p.m. Tuesday, October 27th at the Rum River Library in Anoka. While Minnesota's own Chuck Logan is perhaps best known for his Phil Broker series, his most recent release, Fallen Angel, is a gripping standalone. A wounded army pilot, only recently returned from Iraq, struggles to make sense of the incident that brought down her helicopter and finds herself part of something much bigger. Meet Chuck Logan, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may enjoy them too. 
Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.